Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you with a second episode in the very same day. That would be 13 January 2023. Because I want to get through this uh, TGF beta story and move on to um, other biomedical phenomena. And also because I'd like to do more, uh, work more on finishing my epistemology metaphysics lecture. Uh, I'm probably almost finished with it, but I know I have at least one 30-minute segment uh, there waiting to be delivered. So let's talk about something here. We were discussing inhibins and activins. And I said to you, I promised you at the beginning of uh, the lecture earlier today, that we see where name changes occur in uh, the literature. Now, the reason those two glycoproteins called inhibin and activin, they seem to work counter to one another. They don't work counter to one another. In fact, they are modulatory, just like the entire TGF family. In fact, we already mentioned to you that activin is a TGF beta subclass. Now I'm telling you the protein known as inhibin or inhibin beta A is also a member of the TGF beta family. So let me tell you just a little bit about that uh, protein. As it turns out, people have studied inhibin beta A as potentially associated with the development of a very severe cancer in humans, colorectal cancer. So paper I'm looking at here is kind of a review article. And I'm only going to briefly mention it so that we can close off that segment of um, these uh, TGF beta uh, subfamily constituents. <clears throat> so they want to know why inhibin beta A seemed to be responsible for poor patient prognosis. So what they found is that inhibin A expression using immunocytochemistry and Western blotting, <clears throat> and then inhibiting the expression of that protein, proved or showed to them anyways that the effect of inhibin A was to upregulate, wait for it, <laughs> the signaling of TGF beta pathway. In fact, not only the signaling, high inhibin A expression activated the entire SMAD pathway, including TGF-beta expression. So what they discovered in 2021 was that indeed inhibin is inaptly named, doesn't inhibit cancer, nor does it inhibit the effects of activin, which is the other TGF-beta subfamily constituent. In fact, both of them seem to act pathologically in that when you see high expression of those two particular glycoproteins of that family signaling through the same receptor kinases and associating with the SMAD proteins, either the 2, 3, the 4, or the 1, 5, 8, and the 4, and then working through RUNCs, for example, or SOX9 as the ultimate transcription factor binding site on the response element for the promoter region of the gene, 
that both of those proteins, active and inhibited, I, feel, I realized that was a very long phrase in front of what, I, what the take-home message here is, so I repeated it. Those two proteins, inhibin uh, um, and activin, both act to promote, in most often cases with high concentrations, the TGF-beta family that will lead to pro-inflammatory and also carcinogenic states. So once again, another TGF-beta protein is being recognized as a potential target by the pharmaceutical industry. So we'll leave it at that for now and just move on. I wanted to make sure I covered off the inhibit because they didn't want to leave that um, protein out there uh, as an orphan. So I think we can say that there are conflicting reports on the inflammatory involvement of TGF-beta. So here, let's go back to our discussion of the synovial complex. TGF-beta is a stimulator of synovial inflammation and indeed hyperplasia. I've mentioned this a couple times in this uh, series of lectures. And I told you even that an intra-articular injection into rat knee joints with TGF-beta will result in swelling and then ultimately an inflammatory response. So the TGF-beta-induced infiltrate consisted after 24 hours after this injection, mostly of mononuclear phagocytes. So those would be of that granulocyte family. There were also some lymphocytes and some neutrophils, but most of these are mononuclear phagocytes. <clears throat> so, so that means the innate immune response is turned on okay, for those that want to keep track here. So, the, so we talked a lot about the T cells, right? Just recently, last lecture, and how T cells respond to TGF-beta. Now we see that innate immune cells respond. And we also know that epithelial cells can transform into mesenchymal cells via this pathway. So we see that this TGF-beta has a very important, if not occult, role in many aspects of normal physiology and pathophysiology, and that there are indeed a series of epigenetic links, all the way from the acetylation of histones controlling the receptor for TGF-beta to the methylation patterns of the CPG islands proximal to promoters of some of the adapter molecules that ultimately results in the trans, uh, transcription vector complex leading from TGF-beta signaling. <clears throat> so antagonism of TGF-beta with a strong neutralizing antibody, an IgG, in a model of erosive polyarthritis caused a blockage of cell infiltration and overall tissue necrosis. And so what that suggests is that elevated levels of TGF-beta in the OA joint, the osteoarthritic joint, will lead indeed to TGF-beta-related inflammation that contributes to joint damage in OA. Okay? So this is just re-discussing uh, what we've already been saying, but I want to make sure you understand that this has been gone, this um, paradigm has been arrived at using 
various modes of delivery of experimental design. This one here was just directly injecting TGF-beta and inducing an inflammatory response. Okay. So that means, of course, TGF-beta had to be processed, had to run through its receptor, had to turn on the kinase cascade, had to phosphorylate the SMAD proteins, had to ultimately yield up a series of pro-inflammatory cytokine transcriptions so that you got the inflammatory response. Now, on the other hand, okay, chirally speaking, although TGF-beta can attract inflammatory cells, just again, these would be the innate immune cells, macrophages, for example, monocyte macrophage lineages. Um, they can attract inflammatory cells to the joint. TGF-beta also has a very powerful anti-inflammatory action. So mice lacking TGF-beta-1, completely lacking knockout, develop massive inflammation resembling some autoimmune disorders relative to that rodent model, <clears throat> such as SLE, for example. Now, in lamina propria cells of the gut, TGF-beta suppresses NFAT-induced NF-kappa-B P65 accumulation in the nucleus so that suppressed nuclear factor alpha-induced NF-kappa-B P65 accumulation means that NF-kappa-B binding DNA activity and NF-kappa-B dependent gene activation is also suppressed. Okay? So that's all the result of TGF-beta. Moreover, in this mouse model, using a zymazan-induced arthritic injection of TGF-beta, there was no effect on inflammation, but there was a stimulated proteoglycan increase. And that indeed protected against what was happening with the erosion of the proteoglycan layer, protected the loss of proteoglycan. So what does this tell us? Well, it's saying that these contrarian TGF-beta effects demonstrate that TGF-beta will attract inflammatory cells to a joint and stimulate, yes, synovial hyperplasia and fibrosis and often inflammation. But the end effect of that last component doesn't always occur to the point where you get a progression to tissue destruction. So that's probably related to the osteoarthritic model that's being studied, because remember, many of these models in rats and mice are inducible. One of them was surgical. Remember that one, HCL. And the other thing about this stu these studies is that TGF-beta and anti-TGF-beta treatments often seem to cohere. That is, add TGF-beta, you get, for example, an inflammatory response. You use the inhibitor of TGF-beta, you block it. Remember that study I told you two lectures ago? But then in other studies, like the one I just told you here, TGF-beta seems to have an anti-inflammatory role. So what does that tell me as a biochemist? Well, it's obvious that we're dealing with different 
categories of effect. We're dealing, first of all, with quantitative effects. How much TGF-beta in the active form is binding to the receptor, triggering the receptor kinase activity, binding to all the adapter molecules, getting it to the nucleus, and causing transcriptional regulation. But that quantity, also the spectrum of the range of that quantity, is going to have effects other than transcriptional. And these could be as yet undescribed. So just like any pro-inflammatory cytokine, I think if we dig deeper into the literature, we'll probably find the papers because I'm not going to say they're not there because I haven't looked. I'm going to be authentic all the time with you in this podcast of mine. But I'm speculating that TGF-beta can have an effect on directly bioenergetics. Remember that one paper we talked about the, those cells using oil bodies as a source of carbon to generate ATP for chondrocyte regeneration. Remember those? Yeah. So that's a very slow metabolic pathway because you need multiple steps to be able to oxidize the fatty acid. And even in lower oxygen tensions, remember that? That seemed like an anomaly. You know, 3 to 5% oxygen. It's still an adequate amount of oxygen metabolically to drive beta oxidation of fatty acids. And you know that that is a much more steady state level of ATP synthesis that does not crowd out the first three complexes of the electron transport chain so that you start to get what? Reactive oxygen species generation because of the incomplete reduction of molecular oxygen which is also, of course, also occurring during the proton pumping chemiosmotic uh, ATPase, finally ATP synthetic pathway for the ETC oxfos. So if you use fatty acid oxidation and it's done slowly because of the low levels of molecular oxygen, you're not likely to generate reactive oxygen, see? So if it's glucose, glucose has to be taken up. And many cellular situations, particularly in epithelia, you're going to have some dependency on insulin for glucose uptake. So if that's the case, or you're going to have that, or you're going to have the S-glute pathways, you're going to have to have some ion, ion um, gradients being generated to be able to bring glucose in. If you've already stored triacylglycerol in cell in these cell lines. And you, all you need to do is mobilize it away by lipase activation, uh, coenzyme A synthesis, uh, acyl-CoA synthesis, acyl-carnitine synthesis, beta-oxidation pathways that are already in situ that don't require nascent expression induction. Or even if they do, that's a very low energy demand. It's also because of the low oxygen, lower levels of reactive oxygen. So that's speculation on my part, but it, it's one way to get at this, right? So that's just the quantitative effect of TGF-beta. There's also the qualitative effect. We're telling you these activin and inhibin and these TGF betas, one, two, three, et cetera, all have different structures as primary structure. Amino acids, it's not identical. So what are all the different possible corresponding affinities or occlusions on the receptor with competition between the TGF beta subspecies, submolecular species? 
And is that going to modify or modulate the ultimate transcription factors being generated? And not just that, the whole mobility of those protein complexes coming from the cytoplasm into the nucleus and onto the chromatin. Because we know that even like sterile binding proteins have multiple pleiotropic effects besides simply mobilizing their uh, a cargo to generate a transcription of, for example, cholesterologenesis LDL receptor um, transcription, right? Because of low cholesterol. So you see what I'm saying? Because we already know that it, whenever there are intermediates in a pathway, each one of those intermediates can, I use the word moonlight, and by moonlight, it still means they're functioning in the cell, directing some kind of orchestrated motif and teleology. But those motifs and teleologies can vary according to the requirements and vagaries of the cell population, including the age of the cell. So that also would relate to how these cells are interacting with one another in the tissue as they differentiate. That would be a relational judgment within the confines of the biochemical phenomena. And then finally, once again, modality, right? Are these probabilistic activities? Are these assertive activities? See, I'm, I'm incorporating these words that we use for judgment, but you see the cell is still making biochemical choices. And those choices are based on a rigorous control over the stoichiometry of all the protein players, all the nucleic acids, and all the endomembranous lipid compartment utilization of trafficking and member epigenetic profiling of changes in gene expression. Okay. So that's ultimately what we wanted to get to with this discussion, although we have a lot more <laughs> we have a lot more slides to talk about. I don't want to get cut off again. Let's see where I am. Come on. Yeah. Oh, we're doing fine. Okay. I had to search for my clock. Sorry. So let's get back to the discussion here. So that's where we're at right now. That's where we are at right now. Now, here's a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. It's a 2022 paper in April. So it's less than a year old. Now we're talking about SMAD4. SMAD4 is, of course, a mediator of TGF-beta signaling. We already discussed how it played a very significant role in T cells like Tregs versus T helper cells 1 and 2, T helper cells 9 class, and T helper cells 17 most recently. And we're told you in some of those instances, many of those instances, SMAD4 as it mediated TGF-beta signaling might play a role to prevent inflammation. So this paper, published probably by medical doctors, maybe some PhDs as well, because it's in the Journal of Clinical Investigation, it's more of a biomedical, sense stricter type journal, right, dedicated to biomedical phenomena in, in the medical setting. What they want to look at is do T cells prevent IBD? Inflammatory bowel disease. So now we're moving into a different disease paradigm. So using both genetic and epigenetic approaches, because they already know, because it's 2022, they already know they better do some epigenetic profiling. Okay. They show that there is a very unusual mechanism by which SMAD4, the adapter protein 
controlling the ultimate transcription factor, led on by TGF beta signal. A very unusual way that SMAD4 prevents CD8 positive T cells from becoming pathogenic in the gut. Now remember, CD8 positive T cells are a different line of T effector cells that's going to generate natural killer cells. And that, you know, they're going to deal much differently with the whole TCR, T cell receptor mediated responses. So this is a different paradigm altogether than T helper cells we just talked about, even though they are T cells, right? I want you to make sure that CD8 positive T cells have a totally different nature of organization around the inflammatory response. They're much more, in a way, potently deadly without going through a great deal of screening properties, biochemical properties, to make sure that they can kill a cell, right? All right, that's one, it's like a generalization for CD8 positive. And the CD8 positive T cells are very important in uh, pathogenesis in IBD. So prior to the engagement of the TGF beta receptor, prior to that, SMAD4 seems to restrain the epigenetic control over transcription and thus what the normal functional response to TGF beta involves in CD8 positive T cells. So mechanistically, prior to TGF beta signaling, SMAD4 will bind directly to the promoters that are normally affected after TGF beta signaling and enhance and enhancers, so promoters and enhancers of many of the normal canonical TGF-beta genes, some of which are pro-inflammatory cytokines, right? Or apoptotic signaling molecules, remember that. And, they, and this is um, facilitated by regulating <laughs> histone deacetylation. Now, you will recall that because we were talking about histone deacetylation of lysine residues proximal to promoter regions for TGF beta 1 receptor, right? Now we're telling that SMAD4 is going to control that acetylation phenomena. In fact, it's going to regulate histone deacetylation. That means it's going to shut down gene expression. So basically, it suppresses the expression of those genes, SMAD4, when it binds alone without the cooperation of the TGF-beta signaling pathway. So what occurs then, the final result of that, is regardless of what goes on subsequent to TGF-beta signaling, SMAD4 will then limit because of cooperative binding to the promoters and enhancers, therefore competing against the larger transcription factor complex it will limit the expression of the TGF-beta negative feedback loop genes, which will control the whole process. And those will include SMAD7, which we've talked about, and that SKI protein, which shuts everything down. That will therefore condition CD8-positive T cells to immunoregulate TGF-beta. Okay? So now we're getting... The details I just told you, remember, I, was, I led you right into this. I told you, what about all those adapter molecules? What are they doing in epigenetics? Well, the reason I brought that in a generic way as a creative idea 
is because I knew this paper was published and I knew I was leading to it. See? So now you followed me there. Now here's another paper. This is in JCI Insight, another journal. Well, better check my time. Yeah, we're still doing okay. Gosh, I hate having to always go back and look for time. Okay. Uh, JCI Insight. Macrophages, of course, are primary immune cells and they're involved in inflammation. Okay. We already well described this. All the, all the immunity lecture, uh, immunology lectures I've given you, I'm sure you know that. And especially all of you are probably trained in this, or some of you are. Now, the cell plasticity. First of all, remember M1, M2. M1, pro-inflammatory. M2, cleanup crew, anti-inflammatory, or at least neutral. Cell plasticity of macrophages allows for the transition from inflammatory to a reparative phenotype. That's when it cleans up all the digested proteins and cell wall fragments if it happens to be a pathogen. And so that's critical for normal tissue repair following an injury. The injury can be induced by, for example, a pathogenic agent, or it can be induced by direct mechanical physical injury or overuse, such as with the chondrocyte story. Right? So epigenetic alterations play a critical role, as we know, because we've described this before, but I I'm going to just act like you don't remember that. I'm going to act like you're naive to this. In establishing the macrophage phenotype and therefore the function of the macrophages. And that occurs during normal, regular, healthy wound repair, but also at those stages of pathological overshooting and a pro-inflammatory response. So when that happens, the wound-associated macrophage cyclooxygenase 2, prostaglandin E2 as a product, becomes elevated. And where do we see this? We see this in diabetics. And what occurs is a regulation downstream of macrophage-mediated inflammation and inappropriate host defense mechanisms. Remember I told you how obesity leads to type 2 diabetes, not always, but very often, and how that's a pro-inflammatory system set up, right? It is a status of pro-inflammation. Here's one of the ways that occurs. Turning on cyclooxygenase, making prostaglandin uh, E2, which are going to be the prolegomena to full-blown inflammation, right? Those are the lipid mediators to turn on an inflammatory response via the, the Cox pathway. So what happens is there's an increased end of kappa B mediated inflammation in diabetic associated wounding. And indeed it shows an increased cyclooxygenase 2, PGE2, that's the product, prostaglandin E2, that occurs within this diabetic macrophage community of cells. So COX-2, PGE2 production, and wound macrophages requires so that is, it is an epidictic event, epigenetic regulation of two key enzymes. In the cytosolic phospholipase A2, COX-2, PGE2 pathway. And what this paper shows is that TGF-beta induced microRNA 29B, that's an epigenetic microRNA, will increase 
COX-2 and therefore PGE2 synthesis. Via and so COX-2 will be transcribed, and PGE2 is the product of COX-2 reactivity, with, for example, rocketomic acid as a substrate, right? Of course. And that will happen via inhibition. TGF beta will induce microRNA 29B to increase COX-2 PG2 production via the inhibition of a DNA methyltransferase 3B mediated normal hypermethylation of the COX-2 promoter region. So they find a mixed lineage leukemia 1 and the MLL1 also upregulates the cytosolic phospholipase A2 expression, which drives COX-2 PGE2, transitioning now to the pro-inflammatory response. Why is that? Because phospholipase A2 is going to generate free arachidonic acid from preformed membrane-associated glycerophospholipids. Okay? Let me see where my time is here. Oh, yes. Only have one minute left. It was a great, like, hit-down moment here. Smack-down moment, I guess I could call it, where I could give you the final uh, couple of um, sentences that will complete the story. But I'm going to let that wait. I'll leave you hanging, although I told you basically what's happening. I'm going to give you the final um, synoptic when I start the next lecture. No, it won't be today. Two lectures in one day is plenty for me. I'll do the next one perhaps tomorrow on a Saturday. Anyways, hope that you are enjoying this. This is Dr. as much as I am. It's Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast in the in the Pacific Northwest of the USA as it grows dark and still very windy and blustery on this Friday the 13th, January 2023. Bye for now.